Please open your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of Luke. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text for today's message written on the back of the insert. And again, we have slowed down some as we've reached the cross. I think that's only fitting. There's so much going on, so many um, things to see, such richness for us to behold. This morning, a very familiar passage, a much beloved passage, um, the thief on the cross, although Luke only knows him as the criminal on the cross. And in these few verses, we will see the glory of our Lord, we will see the glory of the gospel, and we'll see hope for sinners. Let's begin by reading our text, and we'll dive in. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same condemnation, sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, how marvelous it is to behold one snatched from the flame is at the very last moment. How marvelous it is to behold our Savior, even as he dies for the sins of his people, even as he is saving many He saves this one. And Lord, we too would be with him in his kingdom. We too would be remembered by him. Lord, let us see what this criminal saw. Let us respond as this criminal responded. To the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. They crucified him in verse 33. And even as his enemies were taunting him, mocking him, he responded, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We looked last week at the ironies of the cross. These wicked people, like you and me, think that they have triumphed, that they are in control, that they are sovereign. Jesus appears powerless even though he is powerful. They taunt him that he is unable to save himself and unable to save others. We saw that Jesus is saving others precisely by not saving himself. They view him as cursed of God and therefore it is impossible that this one cursed of God might be the Lord's Messiah, his Christ. Jesus is both Christ and he will be cursed of God, not for the reasons that they thought These blasphemers crucify him for the sin of blasphemy. And finally, Jesus is mocked as king, and he is king. Divinely and humanly, he is king. Luke turns our attention now. He introduced these criminals back in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. We don't know much more about them, Um, these criminals, what crimes they had committed what ethnicity they were. Um, We we don't know. I don't think that's important. What is important is, I think in these two criminals, the first and the second criminal, we 
see the fate of all humanity. In one respect, these two stories, these two men, their two fates, you could divide all of human history, all, everyone in this room, down to one of those two paths. And so I want to look at them. I want to see what we can learn from them, what we can learn about the character and the nature of unbelief, and what we can learn about the character and the nature of true faith, what we can learn about the gospel and our Savior. So let's begin by looking at a blasphemous taunt, a blasphemous taunt. One of the criminals who are hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's it's stunning. This man is being publicly shamed. The whole point of crucifixion is to make you a byword, a source of reproach. It's, It's done publicly. It's not just to torture and cause pain, but but shame that the crowds, the people might see. We know from history that they would line the roads to Rome with crucified individuals coming in. It made it clear, we take the law seriously here. This is what we do to those who resist us. This man has done some crime worthy of crucifixion. He's being publicly mocked, publicly shamed. And what's amazing is the human unbelieving heart can never be so low, so dark, so shameful, that it cannot rejoice at someone more so. At least I'm not as bad as you. I may be crucified, but they're not taunting me. So he joins in, point A, the criminal joins in the mocking. This is the nature of the human heart, the natural human heart. This man is is also being executed, also being ridiculed, also being shamed, but not as badly as this man. So, (laughs) and he joins in. And we comfort ourselves, don't we? Even in our sin and our wickedness that we're not as bad as that person. At least I'm not as bad as Hitler. And it goes on. This criminal joins in the mocking. It's terrifying. He's, He's minutes, hours away from judgment and death. And he just joins in mocking Christ. The one good thing in his mind that he can do is he can, he can join in taunting Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And I love that. He hedges his mocking with, but if you are the Christ, save me too. Notice he throws that in as well. He's mocking Jesus. Save yourself and, and us. And the slight off chance that Jesus is the Christ, save us too. So it's ironic that both of these men in one sense, one in a mocking, ironic way, one sincerely, ask Jesus for help, don't they? Both of these men appeal to Jesus with differing levels of sincerity, differing levels of honor, vastly differing levels. But both of them ask for help. But I want you to notice, and this is another, I think, indication of the unbelieving heart, he demands Jesus save him on his own terms. And this is what I encounter regularly in evangelism and talking with unbelievers. Life's dealt you things that you think are hard or wrong, difficult, and God, if he's going to be your God, he better solve them the way you want them solved. He better work on your timetable. You know, God, this is a fine pickle I'm in, but you can get me out of this, then maybe I'll do something. He, He demands Jesus save him on his own terms. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We looked last week. Jesus is saving. Jesus is in the act of saving. Precisely because he's not saving himself. But this, this guy's going to give orders. He demands Jesus save him on his own terms. 
And so often, that, that is what's going on in the unbelieving heart. Um, when you talk with people, the excuses they'll give for why they do not bow the knee to Christ is they have things they want God to do for them. These rails. I mean, here, here is the salvation of the world. Here is the Lamb of God, feet away from him. In the act of saving, this man is so blind that he does not see and he mocks him. A third thing to note, he is only interested in immediate temporal help. He is only interested in immediate temporal help. He, he, there's no indication of forgiveness of sin or anything. Get me off this cross. And that makes a certain amount of sense. The cross is painful, agonizingly so. so if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And again, the, the, the unbelieving carnal mind frequently is interested in the gifts God can give. It's going to be challenging. You know, God can sometimes get our attention. The loss of a job, the death of a loved one, the end of a marriage, a disease. And yet, so often, all we can be interested in is simply, God, get me out of this bind now. So this, this blasphemous man, we don't hear any more of him. He gets rebuked by the other criminal. We see that he, even in his own shame, in his own depravity, in his own punishment, he still finds joy in railing against someone more so than him. He demands that Jesus save him on his own terms, and he's really only interested in temporal help. I highlight that because the other criminal is a stark contrast to this. That's the blasphemous railing and taunts. And then something amazing happens. Something absolutely amazing happens, and, and it's a work of God's sovereign grace. The people crucifying Jesus had seen him raise the dead. At least some of them had. Twice in Luke's gospel, Jesus has raised the dead. We know from the other gospels, he has just recently raised Lazarus. And yet this thief, in seeing Jesus not raising the dead, but in seeing him dying, understands something. His eyes are opened. He makes connections that are profound. And, and the thief on the cross serves as a great help in clarifying the gospel and its simplicity. Because the thief on the cross, after all, was not baptized. The thief on the cross did not celebrate in communion. And yet, we see a profound work of repentance and faith in this man. Which brings us to point two, a repentant rebuke and confession. A repentant rebuke and confession. He's going to sharply rebuke the other criminal, but not in a railing, self-righteous way. He goes on to fall on his own sword, confess his own sin, his own unworthiness. Look at verse 40 and 41. But the other rebuked him. And and pause. I love the fact that Luke tells us on either side of Jesus. This conversation is taking place with Jesus in the middle as he's talking to each other, past Jesus, the other criminal. Do you not fear God? Since you enter the same sense of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Okay, repentant rebuke and confession. It's, it's startling the conclusions this man sees. And again, we're going to learn through the contrast the difference between the believing heart, the believing mind, the unbelieving heart, the unbelieving mind. First, 
This criminal sees their crucifixion is God's judgment. God's judgment. Even though the Romans are doing it, this criminal sees his own crucifixion and the other criminal's crucifixion as the judgment of God. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? It doesn't say do you not fear the Romans. Do you not see God? Do you not fear God? And again, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that the, the final charge brought against unbelieving man in Romans 3 is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Jesus, earlier in Luke, warned. Luke 12, 4-5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, if nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This criminal understands and awakens to the fear of God. He sees the hand of God in his suffering. And that's, that's profound because most of us, if we think God has something to do with our suffering, get mad at him. This Criminal is being crucified, excruciating pain and torture. Death is hours away, minutes away from him. He sees it as the judgment of God and it awakens fear in him. And he, and he, he calls the other thief to the fear of God. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Next, again, striking. He sees that their crucifixion is just and fitting. Just and fitting. Literally righteous. It is right. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And that Greek word for due reward is the same word we get axiom from. It is fitting. It's corresponding. Now I'm guessing most of us today if we learned of a country that was regularly crucifying thieves, we'd probably think that was overkill. Wouldn't we? This man, first off, sees the hand of God in this. He sees their temporal judgment as an indication of future judgment. If this is what Rome does to me for my deeds, what will the living God do to me for my deeds? And second, there's no excuses. There's no, I never had a fair shot. I've been marginalized, oppressed. This fascist government has oppressed me. I didn't have any choices. No, this man is suffering one of the worst fates you can suffer, and he owns it. This is just. This is fitting. And that, again, is a hallmark of true repentance and faith. This man recognizes it is just. This is the same point Jesus made when they told him about the Tower of Siloam that fell. You remember in chapter 13? They're all confused. Surely these people on whom this tower fell, surely these people who Pilate mingled with their blood were worse sinners than other people. And Jesus says, no. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And what we realized is we all deserve towers to fall on us. We all deserve, in one sense, crucifixion. That's what this thief is saying. That's what this criminal is saying. That's what a repentant heart looks at. In light of the fact, it's really simple. The math is simple. If I truly deserve hell, and if God's in control of all things, then anything less than hell is also right and fitting. And that's a radical way 
to look at and view your sufferings, your trials, your disappointments. This is fitting. This is right. This is not someone complaining. It's not fair. I mean, if someone had a right to complain, it's not fair. This guy could make a pretty good case. But when the fear of God is awakened in our hearts, when true repentance is formed, no, we own it. I deserve this and worse. This is just. This is fitting. No excuses. He sees a third thing. After confessing his own justice, the fittingness of his crucifixion, he recognizes the innocence of Jesus. He confesses that Jesus is innocent. We are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Luke wants to emphasize this point to Theophilus. This is now the sixth time in this chapter and by the third person that we read, Jesus has done nothing wrong. I gave you the the list of the references there. Pilate, three times. Herod, once. This man, once. I forget the six. There are six of them, though. Luke wants to make that point emphatic. But more to the point, this criminal recognizes Jesus is innocent. He, he simultaneously sees his own guilt and the righteousness and the purity of the one next to him. And again, this is another mark of faith because we, in our unbelief, are satisfied with ourselves. If we're not fully satisfied, we're confident in ourselves. Well, I, I do the best I can. I try my hardest. I'm a good sort of chap. I'm not as bad as that person. But when, when the spiritual eyes open up, when the Lord reveal, removes the veil, when he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, we see our true state and we abhor ourselves. I, I deserve crucifixion. This is fitting. And then he sees Jesus. That, that man's innocent. That man is innocent. This is, this is the hallmarks of faith, an awareness of one's own guilt, no, no excuse making, which then leads to a believing plea, a believing plea. This is, this is remarkable. <laughs> He's feet away from Jesus. They're both nailed to trees. They're both being crucified. They're both heading quickly towards death. In a stark contrast to the first criminal who mocks Jesus, demands that he save him in his own terms, and is only interested in, in a temporal help, notice he does not seek immediate temporal help. Because the fear of the Lord's awakened in him. He's much more concerned about him who will judge the living and the dead. He's not in, he's, I mean, when true faith and repentance are in human hearts, even though you're being crucified, he's not worried about that. He is not trying to figure out how to solve his crucifixion problem. I imagine for you or for me, that would be the number one issue. I'm being crucified. I'm going to die shortly. I need to get out of this. He's not worried about that at all. That's not on his mind. He's not seeking immediate temporal help. What's he seeking? We'll see that in a moment. He believes, next next piece of Christology, he believes Jesus is sinless. He believes he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He believes Jesus is truly God's king. How's that? Because Jesus is going to come into a kingdom. And his request is built around that assumption he believes Jesus is truly God's king. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
This is the mocking taunt that is affixed above his head. And yet this man, this thief, gets that this, this is the king. And he's not looking for any immediate temporal benefit. He's, Jesus, please tell them to stop. Get me off. The, no, he's, he's content to die if only Jesus will in the future remember him in his kingdom. Because what he's asking for, point C, is that he might be with him in his kingdom. See, see, true faith is first and foremost concerned with the giver and not his gifts. True faith is first and foremost concerned with reconciliation, with being with the God who gives good gifts, not the good gifts that God gives. What, if he, what is his number one, his only plea? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Let me be with you there. Perhaps he was so emboldened to make this request because he had just heard Jesus minutes, moments ago, crying out, Father, forgive them. This also indicates, and we don't know how fully formed his theology is of resurrection, but clearly this thief understands this crucifixion is not the end of Jesus. Whether or not he understands the resurrection, somehow he knows Jesus will endure through the crucifixion and be able to enter and receive a kingdom. So I don't know how fully formed that is in his mind, but he understands this crucifixion is not the end of Jesus. He sees in the dying man next to him a king. And he makes one request, Jesus, remember me. And there you've got it. He, he understands the judgment of God. The fear of God is awakened in him. He understands his own sinfulness, the, the rightness of his own sufferings. He, he confesses the justice being done to him. He, he sees the innocence of Jesus and he flees to him. He cries out to him. He's not interested first and foremost in any temporal help. Just when you, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? So how does our Savior respond to this criminal? This man who, for all of his life, presumably has lived for himself, done his own thing, gone his own way, and now, in the last moments of his life, is making amends and making a change. Is it too late for him? We have to try better than that? No. No, this is our Savior. He came to seek and save the lost. And even as he is dying on a tree, that's exactly what he does. Jesus, point four, brings a comforting reply, a comforting reply. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus fully grants his plea. But moreover, it's, it's lavish. This reminds me of the, of the prodigal son. Turn back to the parable of the prodigal son in chapter, um, where's the prodigal son? 18. Turn up chapter 18. No, 15. 15. Sorry. And remember, the, parable, the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son were meant to illustrate God's happy heart, his lavish acceptance and love of repentant sinners. This whole thing started, chapter 15, verse 1, 
The tax collectors and sinners were drawing to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He is not just. He's not righteous. He's not clean because he lets these dirty scum come to him. And so Jesus tells the first parable of the sheep, how the shepherd rejoices over finding the one lost sheep. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 coins? He goes on to tell that story. We get to the point, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus' answer is, yes, they're sinners, but they are repentant sinners. And God delights in saving. He rejoices. There's a party in heaven when sinners repent. And then the longest parable of that is the story of the prodigal son. Now the prodigal son goes to a similar awakening. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's, he's not looking for his rights. He's just making a plea. And he comes to his father, and amazingly, the father's looking for him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and was alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. That's the heart of God. And that's the heart of our Lord. This criminal, crucified next to Jesus, turns to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when I enter your kingdom. And Jesus fully grants this request and lavishly more. This man doesn't know when the kingdom will come. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. So he understands that his request is for some future date. And from our perspective, 2,000 years on, it's still future. He's just saying, whenever that kingdom, whenever you enter your kingdom, Jesus, remember me there. Jesus, no, today. I've got something for you today. Luke loves doing this, that announcement of today, the immediacy of God's blessings. The angels, remember in Luke 2, 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Where Jesus, when he went to his hometown and read Isaiah, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when Jesus healed the paralyzed man in Luke 5, the people left saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Or more recently, Jesus to Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus promises him blessings immediately. Immediately. This criminal dares to hope that perhaps Jesus, the innocent Jesus, the righteous, might remember him some future day when he enters his kingdom. And Jesus says, not only that, I've got something for you today. And it's not that you'll be in the outskirts of my kingdom. You'll be out in the ghettos. You'll be out far removed. You'll be with me. 
Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with this repentant, believing criminal. Truly, you will be with me in paradise. A couple of implications here, by the way. This proves that Jesus did not go on to suffer in hell. After the cross, Jesus' spirit does not descend into hell for three days. Jesus goes to paradise with this thief. And it's not the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say you'll be with the kingdom today. The kingdom has not yet come. Jesus has been inaugurated king, but his kingdom is still future. But this repentant, believing thief will be with Jesus. Isn't that what really matters? I mean, do you really care what the scenery is if you're with Jesus? It's amazing. He's being taunted. He's being mocked. He's being crucified. He's being unjustly condemned. And Jesus is still full of love and compassion. Like the shepherd that rejoices over one sheep being found. Like the woman who rejoices over one coin that is lost being found. Like the father whose son comes to him repentantly, rejoices. Jesus gives this man comfort. He is comforting this man. And I think part of the reason he says truly is what he's saying is such a great promise that It might be hard to believe. No, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Point C, Jesus then truly is truly and fully saving others. Jesus is truly and fully saving others. I just want to stop and, and put some of this together for us. Every one of us is apportioned measures of suffering and pain. Life is full of it. It is man's lot and portion to varying degrees. Some of it immediately just. We've done it to ourselves. Others, more in a roundabout sense. I am a sinner, and so it's not wrong when bad things happen to me. And we have a choice to either respond in contempt and anger and curse God or demand that he fix our problems on our own terms according to our own standards. And we can take the advice of Job's wife and curse God and die. Or, we can see what this criminal sees. What Jesus warned the crowds to see, that whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever difficulty is in your life is meant to warn you to flee the wrath to come. These things are in this world because we are sinners, because we are wicked, because we are corrupt. We are not good people who sometimes do bad things. Bad things have only ever happened to a good person once, and it's right here, and he volunteered for it. No, this thief saw the fear of God, the judgment of God, and what was happening to him, and he recognized in light of his deeds, it was just and fitting. If you can recognize your Sinfulness. So whatever is coming to your life is infinitely better than hell. I mean, that's just the logic. Whatever suffering you're going through is infinitely better than hell. There's not a single person in hell who would not beg and plead to swap places with you for an hour. I don't care how bad you've got it. And I do believe some of you have it very bad. I'm not trying to minimize real suffering. We just simply have no comprehension of the awful anguish of hell. we see our own guilt we see that we don't we don't come to god with rights and demands we come empty-handed 
And we see that in contrast to our filth, our corruption is one who is righteous, is one who is a king. And we simply, in faith, turn to him and ask for mercy. That's how one is saved. You want to know how you can be sure that you're going to be with Christ the day you die? Recognize your guilt. Recognize your corruption. Offer no excuses. Recognize the justice and the rightness of God's judgment and recognize that there is one who is sinless. Recognize there is one who died for you and call out to him. As it is written, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This thief doesn't have baptism, rituals, religious performance, confirmation, whatever. That's not necessary for salvation. It can be necessary for your obedience, but for salvation, recognizing your condition, abhorring it, turning from it to Christ, crying out in faith that you might be saved. This man, the last moment, is snatched out of the flames by our Savior. He is on the one hand saving offering salvation to the whole world, bearing their sins. On another hand, he is individually saving this one lost sheep, bringing him into the fold mere minutes, hours before his death. That same offer is extended to you and to me. That same offer is what the apostles are told at the end of Luke 24. Turn to Luke, the end of Luke 24. We'll close here. That's the message Jesus commissions his apostles to go out and proclaim to all the world. This offer is not just for the criminal on the cross. It's for you and for me. Luke twenty four forty four. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. You were witnesses to these things. So this is not an offer of salvation only for the criminal, but for you and for me. Don't trust in yourself. Stop making excuses offering complaints for why life has been unjust to you. Recognize the mercy and the kindness of God in restraining and holding back the calamity that awaits each and every one of us. Each one of us deserves to be crucified. Each one of us deserves a tower to fall on them. Because each one of us, without Christ, deserves hell and something far worse. Stop stop excusing yourself, minimizing your sin, and recognize that if you will own it, there is a Savior who you can call upon. And that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Jesus' death. I'm going to call the worship team up for a closing song. I just marvel. I marvel at our Savior. It's not enough that he's bearing the sins of the people of God. It's not enough that he's being crucified. But he has time to show compassion and kindness and mercy to this criminal. Our Savior is marvelous. It is truly fitting that we sing all glory be to Christ. Please stand.